0: Let's get going. we got a lot to go through today. We're wrapping up this portion of the series of whatever happened to the power of God. Now, we're not done with it. We're going to go somewhere else. But we have been primarily talking about and bringing this to the head with the idea of communion. Why it's important, how it's important, what are we missing in it, because Paul makes some pretty bold declarations that we're going to read here shortly about it. But it's coming back to the understanding of who God is. Is God a man of His Word? It's a question we have to ask. We have to look at this Bible and say, okay, is this the inspired, written Word of God? Was this preserved by the Holy Spirit, uh, penned by men who were full of the Holy Spirit, and directed to write these things down? And if that is so, are the words that are contained within it true? Were they sitting down writing a series of do's and don'ts or were they simply writing down what their experience was in life as they were led by the Holy Spirit so that it could be an example to us? And if that's the case, what do we do with this? Because the problem we have in Christianity today is not a new one, it's been around for years and years and years and years, is that what is the foundation of our faith? What are we going to base our beliefs on? Are we going to base it on our experience? Are we going to base it on the ideas that maybe we bring to the table? Are we going to base it off of something that happened to this one person one time that I heard about? I mean, what are we going to base this off of? And what are we going to do with it once we get there? You see, the thing is, is what we're talking about is having a biblical worldview. That's really what it comes down to. When it comes to a worldview, whether you know it or not, you have one. Everybody has one. A worldview is nothing more than a way that you process the information of what you see around you. It's your belief system. You vote based off that worldview. So everybody's got a worldview. The problem is, is not all the worldviews are very good. They're not based on anything in reality. It's kind of like the the old adage that you know uh, opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them. Some of them stink, right? I'm not looking at anybody in this room. I'm just saying. All right, but. Where do we base our worldview from? If we as believers in Christ and are going to call ourselves Christians and have to define what that term is, we should have a basis, the foundation of our faith. And if that basis is not grounded in this, then it is grounded in your opinion. And if it's in your opinion, guess what? Have you ever had an opinion on something that you changed? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are people in this room that I pray their opinions on things change all the time. Like God help them see the light and quit cheering for those awful football teams. But you know it is what it is. Some people want to go to heaven; others don't. It's okay. Stan, why you getting so red over there? I don't understand. Boomer Boomer Sooner, that's right, that's right. With that white hair, that red face really stands out, doesn't it? But seriously, what what are we going to do? What are we going to base it on when it comes to the idea of the power of God? Is there? examples of the power of God through this Bible. My goodness, how about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What more do you need to know? I mean, if that verse is true, at least everything that comes after it is a, a, a little bit possible. I mean, out of nothing he creates everything. I think he can take care of you. But the problem is today we don't want to ground our foundation, our theology, our beliefs, our systems, anything like that. We want it to do what we want it to do. We want to create a God in our own image. Now, would we ever admit that? Of course not. But that is what we do. We get the ideas that God doesn't heal today. He stopped doing that at the time of the apostles. That, That God doesn't move in the way that he used to. But yet that's contrary to what we see in Scripture. The idea of healing is throughout the entire Bible. We have gone through this ad nauseum. I know some of you guys are like, hey, are you ever going to talk about anything else? Not until you get it. I mean, do you ever stop telling your kids to clean the room just because they didn't clean the room? No. What do you do? You beat them, you ground them, you take stuff from them, you do whatever you got to do to get it through their thick skulls, right? Okay. So, as you can imagine, my poor wife, thick skulls, you know, they come by it honestly, you know. I remember one time somebody asked me what my hat size was. I said, extra large square. You know, it's just, it is what it is. But can we look at the writers of Scripture and say, what did they believe about God? Well, we look at Psalm 103. We read this every week. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. Who forgives your iniquities, he heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. My goodness, David thought God healed. He thought he forgave. It's a good thing too because David screwed up, didn't he? God called him a man after his own heart, after he had an affair, after he had the husband of that woman killed. Because he was quick to repent. But David knew what God's benefits were, and he knew one of those was healing. Under a covenant that was breakable and was broken pretty much the day that it was cut. I mean, guys, we have got to begin to look at everything through a biblical lens and say, what does the Bible say? Not what does this guy said the Bible say. And not what do I think or maybe what I was taught that the Bible says. I got to take off the lenses of this misconceptions about what what God has said in His Word. I've got to just allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and say, "Well, what do you want here?" Because I never see an example where somebody came to God looking to be healed that they weren't. I never see a verse that says God stopped healing. I never see a verse where God said I stopped forgiving. I never see a verse where God says I stopped loving. I never see a verse that God says, you know what, I died for a few of y'all, but not the rest of you. The rest of you guys are on your own. I never see that, because the character of God is love, and love is not a feeling, it's a decision, and that He has willfully chosen to forget all of our sins and bring us into righteousness through His Son. And so, if those things are true, then we better start acting like it, because it's one thing to have an idea of who God is, it's another thing to be in fellowship with the God of this universe Isaiah 53, verse 4, we read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Did he? Because we don't act like it. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You know what's funny? Is we don't act like that one either. You see, Jesus was bruised, or has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? That's what it says. Did he? And we looked at that as we dug down a little deeper, we realized that that word griefs and sorrow means sickness and pain, that he's carried those. We saw that in Matthew chapter 8, where that he went around teaching and preaching and healing so that these words would be fulfilled, that by his stripes we are healed. He took the punishment for us to bring us new life spiritually and to give life to our mortal body spiritually or physically. And so what do we do with this? How come we can't just believe that? How come we can't just walk through life and say, you know what? God said this. I'm just going to go with that. I mean, what else do we have? Because we talk ourselves out of it. We find excuses when we don't see the things that we see. So why was all of this put down? Well, we read this last week. We're going to read it again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, we will circle back to that at some point. But we're not today. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ but with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness now these things became our examples To the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. In the one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complain, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If you ever wonder why the Old Testament is so long, there's plenty of examples for us to not screw up just like they did. All of this was happening to them as examples and were written for our admonition so that we can look at that and say, you know what? Maybe I don't want to follow that path. I mean, don't you as parents want your children to not make the same mistakes that you made? Right? Don't go through that. Now, what do most kids do? They go through that. You see it all the time, that if somebody was an alcoholic or a drug addict as a young, uh, young child, or not a young child, but a teenager or something like that, into their adult life dealing with all of that, and now they get set free from it, and they go to their kids and say, listen, don't dabble with that stuff, just trust me, kids oftentimes will go in there and dabble with that stuff, because it's like, I don't know if I truly believe that. I mean, yeah, that may have happened to you, but that's not going to happen to me. You know why? Because we're born arrogant. We are born prideful. We are born that I know what's good for me. You don't tell me nothing. We have a rebellious spirit from the day that we are born. And it is only by the grace of God that we can break through that. And humbly say, okay, God, if you took my sickness and you took my disease, then I'm willing to just walk with that. I'm willing to just live like that. And I'm willing to just trust you. You see, the idea that we're talking about is in the breaking of the bread and the shedding of the blood, what did Jesus talk about? He said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood that is shed for you. Referring to what we call communion. That's not what they called it. That's what we call it. And so why? What did that mean? Well, we know as a result of that new covenant, which is what this is talking about, that the Spirit of God now dwells inside of us. We saw that in Ezekiel chapter 36 where this new covenant is I will put my spirit within you. For the first time in human history the spirit of God can dwell inside of a man. That's huge. You see in the Old Testament where the spirit of God would come upon somebody, but he would oftentimes lift. You saw it come down on he came down on Saul and then Saul got out of fellowship and got out of rightness with God. And he lifted and went upon David. You see that happen all the time. The Spirit of God would come on somebody. But, but now the Spirit of God dwells within us. Now why is that? Well, he says that when you're born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We kind of use that as some sort of acute analogy. But the reality is, is where was the Spirit of God dwelling? It was in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And so he would dwell there. It was the Shekinah glory where only one person could go in and only one time a year. That was the high priest on the day of atonement. Had to do a whole bunch of rigmarole to get it right. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is talking about. Is that we had a high priest who could at one time go in to the presence of God. But now our great high priest, who's based off this better covenant, has made a way for us that we are all now priests, And now the Spirit of God dwells within us. Now, why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Why does being the temple of the Holy Spirit make any difference? Well, according to Romans 8, verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, what is he talking about? The you is no longer the you that you see. Right? You are not in the flesh. Is that true? It's not true if we're talking about what you see here. We're talking about the real you, the spirit you, that God has created. You are in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Okay, is that true? Is your body dead right now? No, of course not. But what's it talking about? It's going to die. When Adam and Eve sinned, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Did he die at the moment that they ate of the tree? No, because in the Hebrew, saying that dying, you shall die. Spiritually, di- they died, and from that moment on, sickness and death has entered into the world, and so slowly, physically, they begin to decay away. So, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you through the Spirit inside of you, will do what? Give life to your mortal bodies. Was there life in your mortal body prior to somebody coming to Christ? We have to say yes, because he's being very clear. So what does he mean by that? What if it means that the Spirit in us is actually giving health and wellness to our mortal bodies? In other words, we don't have to be sick, and we don't have to deal with that. What if that's what he's talking about here? Paul speaking here. Well, we'll come back to that. You see, the point is isn't in this is that it's almost as if God through his word has made provision for us physically as well as spiritually. He did not take a sick spirit and heal it. He took a dead spirit and gave it life. There's a clear distinction. So when it says by his stripes we are healed and many will say, "Well, that means spiritually." We weren't healed spiritually we were dead and now we are alive and now the Spirit of Christ dwells in us giving life to our mortal bodies so now let's bring this all home this all started with the idea of communion and we know that the idea of communion goes back to what Passover it was the Seder meal that they were celebrating it was the Passover of the Israelites Where the angel of death comes in, he will pass over them, bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. So let's go back and let's read Exodus 12 again. In Exodus 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, just stop there. So we've got God making a change in what they did. Now, the seventh month becomes the first month. It's a new beginning for you guys. But what is this central? It is a round The idea of the Passover, okay? So this Passover, whatever's about to happen, is a brand new beginning for you guys. Is that fair? You guys with me? Okay. Your lamb should be without blemish a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. We know this is ultimately talking about Jesus. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on, on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roast it in fire, its heads, its legs, its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and, and of what remains of it uh, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now why do they need to do it like that? Because you're getting ready to go. Be ready to go. Verse 12, "I will pass over the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So now who is God coming against? It's not the Egyptians, it is the gods of Egypt. And I told you that this one specifically is really referencing Pharaoh himself. You have. The God, who they believe, they worship Pharaoh, and you have the Son of God, who rise up, and He's bringing judgment against them. So this day shall be to you a memorial. Now, I want you to remember this, which is ironic because it's a memorial, all right? Keep this word in the back of your mind. This is so crucial to what we've been talking about. And we read this stuff, and we read it so quickly. This day, what day? The 14th of Nisan. The day of Passover shall be a memorial to you, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. So you're going to pass this on. You're going to do this every single year. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance, never going to end. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, they, the, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day. "...throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month, at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native in the land, you shall eat nothing leaven In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the, all the elders of Israel and said to them... Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover land. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass that when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Lord's Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the house of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads in worship. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, I know this is a lot, and you know what this has to apply with your life directly? Not a whole lot, because we don't celebrate Passover, because this is written to the nation of Israel. Well, we should certainly understand it. We should certainly have the freedom to, sac- or to, to celebrate Passover, but it doesn't mean that we have to. So what are we talking about here? Well, the first thing you notice is that there's a key here. They're supposed to eat everything in haste, be ready to go. And it also talks about unleavened bread. Now, I know I've talked about this, but the unleavened bread has no leaven. Leaven is always a, a symbology of Sin. It's pride. It puffs up. But there's another reason for it is What do you have to do when you're making bread that you're waiting to rise? You have to wait to let it rise. They don't have time to wait. They need to get going. Now, I've showed you this. I'm going to show you some different stuff here in a moment, but I want you to look at this again. When we talk about the matzah, now this is commercially produced matzah. It's not good matzah. Um, I know you brought some today. Does your say for Passover? Because mine says specifically not for Passover. Here it is for Passover. So you have the official, that's right, that means some Jewish man with a long beard probably has a hair stuck in it somewhere. But I told you before that when they, when they make this, it's made at very high heat, it's got to be done quickly, they have no choice but to pierce it. I don't know if you can see the holes in it through the lights, I know I can, I don't know if you can from this distance, but they had no choice but to pierce it, they had to heat it fast because they had to get it done quickly and in doing that it causes these stripes to be formed on it It just kind of happens naturally now i'm going to show you a different piece here in a moment but all of this is done for what we know that jesus was the passover lamb john tells us that behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world the one who has borne our griefs and carries our sorrows it's by his stripes that we are going to be healed that's important keep that in mind but there was a key in this a key that I've addressed, but not really spoken too much of, is that he said, you're going to do this as a memorial. Boy, that's key. Every year, you're going to do this, you're gonna, and, you're going, and, and, and in doing that, you're going to tell your children the story of why you do it. Why? This memorial, why is that important? He never wants them to forget what? The leaving of Egypt? I mean, yeah, that's a big deal, don't get me wrong, but at some point, you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it, like... You got out of Egypt. What does that have to do with me? Why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? Well, we know it matters to God because he goes back so many times. He says, as I led your fathers by the hand out of Egypt. He references it all the time. This was a very big deal. Now, we know that the blood aspect of this is very important. He said that you're to take the blood, catch it in a basin, strike the lintel and the doorpost, and that when the God sees it, it's a sign to him and he will pass over, okay? Well, what does blood have to do with anything? Well, again, we've got to look at the system that they were in. In Leviticus 17, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of the bloodshed, shall be imputed to that man he has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people that to the end of the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer to an open field that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priests and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord and the priests shall sprinkle the blood of the on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations also you shall say to them whatever man of the house of Israel or of the stranger who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Whole lot of talk about blood, whole lot of things you're not supposed to do, and God's kind of serious about it. Verse 11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now we know why God's getting so uppity here. You see, the blood was given to them to make atonement. So don't do it half-heartedly. Don't go out there and, and sacrifice to demons. That blood is for you to bring to me to make you clean, to bring atonement for you. Don't just go out there and do it any way that you want. Don't go out there and think you can just go sacrifice any place. That needs to come to the tabernacle. That needs to be brought here. That priest needs to take that blood and pour it on the altar. This is important for you. You need to do this. Why? You see, every time they sacrifice, it would remind them of one thing. is that they cannot come to God without the shedding of blood. They have to. They have no choice. Every time a sacrifice was made, when they would bring that animal to the priest, they would put their hands on it as the priest killed it to identify with that animal and a priest would catch the boy, but the priest would take over at that point. Burning it, all of that, the priest would take over for them. In other words, they could never come into fellowship with God. They could never come in here and and see God for who He is and just say, I'm going to sacrifice for myself. They can't do it. We've seen a few times where a king or two tries to do that. It does not end well. See, there was a reason that they did it. It would remind them that they fell short, that no matter what they did, they couldn't meet the standard. So, it was a memorial, if you will, that boy, I don't meet up to what God has said. I can't. I need this atonement. God had given them this blood to make atonement for their souls, and they would just go out and do it any way that they wanted to. God says, that's not going to work. You see, this is very important. We have to understand this concept of the memorial that doing something is a reminder of what God has done. Silver meal is a reminder. That God brought his people, redeemed them by the blood of the lamb. That's what redeemed them. It wasn't the killing of the lamb. It wasn't the killing of the firstborn. Those were judgments that were coming. But they were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They had to be ready. You see, this idea of a memorial is all throughout Scripture. You see it multiple times. Let's look at one in Genesis chapter 9. It's talking about the story of Noah. Noah, God says, hey, I need you to build an ark. He says, okay, sure, no problem, right? Never rained before. Never flooded before. We could have used an ark this year, couldn't we? Man, if somebody had an ark that would get you across that river over into Nebraska, you'd have made a fortune this year. Throw a few cars on there, get across, charge what you want. But God destroys the earth with water, and He makes a promise to Noah at the end of this whole thing in verse 8 of chapter 9. God spoke to Noah and to His sons with Him, saying, And as for me, behold, I established my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Now, so what did God just say? I'm establishing my covenant with you, but not just you, but your descendants after you, and not just them, but anything that has breath, I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, some will argue this wasn't a flood that covered the entire earth. It was just a local flood to the area that they were in. If that's true, then God just proved himself to be a liar. Because we just had a flood, right? Every time it flood, it would prove this verse untrue. But God said, I will never destroy the earth with water again. And he hasn't. He's going to destroy the earth again. It's going to be with fire. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generation That means all of them I set my rainbow in the cloud And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh The water shall never again become a a flood to destroy all flesh the rainbow shall be in the cloud And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Now, what does that rainbow mean? Every time somebody from Noah's generation would look at that and they see that rainbow, it was to remind them of what God's word said. What God had said. That's what God's word is, right? Are these not the words that he spoke when we talk about God's word? It is. We often relocate them to some book, but that's really not what it is. This is the breath of God. He said, I will never destroy the earth with water again. And so as he goes through life and you get a rainstorm and you see the cloud, it's like, oh, this is what God's promise was. I don't have to worry about this whole earth being destroyed. It is a little ironic that you get to the time of, of Nimrod where they're building a tower so that if the earth sent a flood again that they would be to the point that he couldn't reach them but if they had just thought about what God said it would remind them right they wouldn't need to do that because God said I'm never gonna do that again in other words did Nimrod take God at his word no of course not did Adam and Eve take God at his word no you see every time they saw that it was a reminder that's what a memorial is You can have a memorial of something set up to somebody that died in your family or whatever, but it is to remind you of them. And it makes you think, boy, what did they say? What did they do? You remember that thing that grandma used to do? It's kind of like when grandma dies for the first time and you guys had always gotten together with her at Christmas and she always had this tradition or something that she brought. And it's just not the same without it, right? It's just different. Every time they looked upon this, it was for a memorial that God said this. We see that all throughout Scripture. You see, when the idea of circumcision to Abraham, it says every time you look upon it, remember that I have given you a covenant. I will make you the father of many nations. When Joshua crosses the, um, the Jordan River, what do they do? They set up stones on the banks of the river and in the middle of the river that every time they looked at it, they remember that this is where God brought us through. Like the Jordan's not a very big river except during flood season, and then it's a pretty big river. They got to get across, but he brought us through on dry land. And it was a memorial. Everything they did, it would remind them every time. You see this all the time. All the festivals that we talk about, like Passover, Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Trumpets, all of these different things are a memorial to what God has done. And ultimately with the coming of Christ. All of those. You see the Feast of Purim, which is out of the book of Esther. They celebrate that as a memorial to God saving the Jewish people. These are everywhere. All through Scripture. You have them in your life and you don't even know it. You have things that that just trigger a memory that we set up. But for these guys, it was always about God and what God had done, what God had provided, or a promise that God was going to do. I know this sounds weird to say, but when we talk about Abraham and circumcision, it literally says that when you look upon it, all right? So we know what that means, right? But it was to remind him he's going to be the father of many nations, and they're going to live in a land that was given and provided by God. But there are other ones that we talk about. There are other memorials. And one of which I, I addressed to several weeks ago, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it today, is dealing with this. These tassels. This is a tallit, in case you weren't here. This is a prayer shawl, is really what it is. Jewish people wear it today. Uh, during Jesus' time, I don't know if they necessarily wore something like this, but it was more a part of their clothing. You know. So this is a little bit. But they had these four corners. Now, where do they get this idea, and what does this have to do with anything? Well, we got to look at that. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation, and put a blue thread in the tassels on the corners. You shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. There he is again addressing that I brought you out of Egypt. So what was the point of this? They put it on the hems of their garments. You remember that David, when he went and he cut off the corner of Saul's garment, this is what he cut off. And it was his authority. It represented it. And so when they would wear these things or it would be part of their clothing, they were supposed to have them on. I'm going to put this on. I'm going to attempt to put this on. And every time they would see it, it would remind them, this is God's commandment." 613 is from the Gematria, which is just the numeric and, and, and alphabetic system. But there are eight threads with five knots, and you do the math, it all works out. But it was to remind them, I got to keep the Lord's commandments. Because why? They were in a covenant with God that was hinged upon them keeping these commandments. So when they're out there doing the things that they know they ought ought not do, they should be able to look down to this and say, oh, you know what? God made a promise to me that if I'll keep his commandments, I will be blessed. And If I don't, I'll be cursed. And I don't like curses. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to keep them. Every time they saw it, it should remind them. Does that ever come into play in Scripture? Absolutely. What do we see with the women, woman with the issue of blood? I know we talked about this. But she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'd be made whole. Coming out of Malachi, knowing that this tassel is the same word, as talking about the hem. That this, when the Son of Righteousness comes, he'll come with healing in his wings. That's the same thing it's talking about right here. You see, when she saw that, she was reminded of what God had said through the prophet Malachi. And she knew if I could just touch this. And she started a firestorm because later on in the book of Mark, we see that other people would just come up and touch this, knowing that there was something here. There was nothing magical about this. It was the belief in God's Word that made them whole. All of these things are a memorial to God. But what does that have to do with us today? We don't wear these, right? Thank God. You know how hard it would be to match something with this and make it look good? I mean, my, my word. It is kind of blue jay color. You want to wear this at your football game next week, boys? Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay, you could, too. You could. We're all digging that Amish beard you got going on back there, too. So I'll start calling you Jethro or something. I don't know. But, but when we look at what's going on here, we've got to get a picture. Because what did Jesus say about communion? Do this in remembrance of me. You see, he's establishing a memorial for us. So let's start in Mark chapter 14. Isn't it fun when the pastor's been talking for about half an hour and he says, okay, let's start. I promise you'll be home before Monday. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. So what do we know we're talking about? We're coming up on the 14th of Nisan, day one. Okay, it was, it was often associated get, uh, together, but the killing of the Passover lamb took place on the 14th of Nisan. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So they're getting ready for it. It's supposed to be prepared. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, Say to the minister of the house the teacher says where is the guest room in which I may eat the passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us so the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the passover now wouldn't you love the pressure given by Jesus said listen here's what I want you to do I want you to go into the city now remember there's a lot of people in the city Because every able-bodied male Jew was required to come back to Jerusalem during Passover. So it's not. It would imagine, if you will, that Rockport, 1,300 people say, hey, go find the guy in the orange shirt and you're walking downtown. There's like nine people walking downtown. Look for the guy in the orange shirt. But now there's a million people. Good luck to you. And what if two of them are wearing an orange shirt? We have problems. So there's a little pressure here. Because Passover has a very distinct thing that must be followed. And he says that you will go. And you will find this man, and you will follow him, and then you're going to say to the guy that house he goes to, hey, where's the upper room? There's a lot of pressure there. But there really shouldn't be, because there's a nuance here that we completely miss. How hard would it be to find a man carrying water in Jerusalem? He'd stick out like a sore thumb. You know why? Men don't carry water. Women do. Right? That was the culture. I bet I know what comments you just made back there. He just leaned over there to her and he probably said something like, and she makes the sandwiches. I bet that's what he said. <laughs> but a man carrying water would be unheard of. So go and find that man and go and follow him. Jesus didn't just say, hey, go to this house. Here's the address and all of that. Why not? Think about this. What was the water? Water was always dipped from a running source, which is known as what? Living water. So the water on the head. go and follow the living water to where we'll eat the Passover. We know that the living water is ultimately talking about the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit without the blood of the lamb being shed. You see, we've got a little picture of salvation that's going on here. So go in there, get ready. Two of these disciples. Verse 17. In the evening he came to the twelve. Now as they sat in ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one who eats with me will betray me and they began to be sorrowful and they said to him one by one is it i another said is it i and he answered said to them it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish the one the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had never been born now we know a lot that's going on here first of all they're freaking out cuz everybody's like well is it me did I, did I do that? I mean, have I, have I missed you? Have I done something wrong? I'm so sorry. Because remember what they're thinking. They're not thinking of him dying and coming back. He's getting ready to establish his kingdom. Have I done something wrong? But you notice his response. It is one of the 12. Now, what does that imply? There's more than 12 people there. So I know the painting. But otherwise, he just said, it's one of y'all. I don't know if he said y'all. I don't know how you say that in Hebrew. But... Or I guess he spoke Greek. (laughs) Get a little phlegm going. But he said it's one of the 12. The ones that were closest to him. The ones who have been by his side from the moment that he was baptized. Because that was the rules. You couldn't be one unless you were. And so he was there from that moment. And it's like, it's one of you guys. One of you 12. One of those who's closest to me. One of those who should have my heart. And we also know that there is a Seder meal going on. How do we know that? Besides the fact that it tells us it's Passover. Because it says that he dips... In the dish with me, that is only done at Passover. I've showed you the plate before. I don't have the picture up there, and I should have. But what would happen is there's a couple points that they would dip the bread. That's what they dip. There was two items in there. There was the bitter herbs and the haroset. Starts with the C, but you don't say it. And I know I'm not pronouncing it right. Can you pronounce it better? <laughs> She's got more flim than I do, apparently. Probably years of yelling a stand, I would imagine. So, but. They would break off a piece of the unleavened bread, all of them would, and if you've ever been to a Seder meal, then you've seen this happen, and they would first dip it in the bitter herbs. Now, we often use uh, horseradish for that. Why do we do that? It invokes a tear for most people. James Thompson would be the one exception back there. He puts it on his cornflakes, but he's the only one in the world that likes it that much. And they would dip it in there, but it was supposed to remind them of what? What God had done. The bondage of slavery that they were brought out of—it was a reminder. And then they would break the bread again, and they would dip it in the hair set, which is this—it's uh, like apples with cinnamon and honey. It's sweet. It's good. Um, I mean, it's no chocolate cake, but it, it does the job. And and they would dip that in there, and it was a reminder of all these things that had to be done. And so there's so much that's going on. This is prior to it, but Jesus says this in Mark 14: verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Blessed and broken, and said, and gave it to them, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, said to them, and they all drank from it, and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. As surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it in the new kingdom of God. What is going on here? Well, we know from other places that we have read, that it was the cup after supper. There was two cups drank prior to this point, two cups. Drink after. The third cup was the cup of redemption. The one that says, This is the new covenant in my blood. But what about the bread? See, prior to that, he says, This is my body which is broken for you. Well, you have to understand the customs because they did break bread, you know, a couple of times prior to that. But when they're getting to the latter half, that is when this comes out. And I gotta show you guys some stuff. This is called a matzutat. Alright? That just means matza pocket. And inside of here is where they would keep three distinct pieces of matzah. All right, now I'm going to do this, attempt this without breaking them. But you can see it in here. Now, matzah traditionally is round, not square. It's mass-produced square because they didn't have the kind of like ovens and stuff like that. But there are three pieces inside of this that you can kind of see. You see it's burnt. I'll pull one out here in a minute. And only three pieces. Now, that's interesting because here we've got one unit containing three distinct pieces what does that sound like to you Sounds like the Trinity doesn't it now if you ask the rabbis they'll say that oh, it's Abraham Isaac and Jacob sometimes they'll talk about his worship and stuff like that and you ask them why are there three distinct pieces but you know what they do they don't just reach in and grab any piece they reach in and grab the one out of the middle and they remove it from the other ones only the middle the other two they are now done with this. This sits off to the side. And then during the meal, these are huge. okay. But this is more likely what they look like. You can kind of see the striping in it. You can kind of see the holes in it. It, it would likely be round. okay. This is certified for Passover, just so you know, in case you were concerned. We quit buying the cheap stuff. But they would, the father of the household would bless the bread, and then he would break it. Okay? Now all the leaven's been removed from the house. Then they would take it and they would put it in what's called the offikoman. Now the offikoman, I have an actual pouch for this, could just be a napkin, doesn't matter. They would wrap it up and they would set it kind of off to the side, but actually what they would do is they would go and hide it. I got to get this thing open. There we go. They would put it in here. And then they would go and hide it. And then a child would have, the children would go and find it. So it would be hidden off somewhere where you couldn't find it. And there's this part. Now, a Seder meal is several hours long, okay? This isn't a quick drive-through McDonald's type experience. It's very, very long. Uh, When we did one a couple of years ago, I asked Brian to give us the condensed version of it, which was two hours. Condensed, two hours, right? It takes about four and a half hours to go through a full-on Seder meal. But they would go and hide it, and then a child would go and find it, and they would come back. And you know what they would do? They would get a reward for it. It was called a ransom. They would ransom the bread in the offikoman. Do you know what afikomen means? Some will tell you that it means dessert. That's what they'll say, but it means that which comes at the end. Okay. So once it was ransomed, the father would take it and... He would take it and he put it under a pillow. I'm going to do all this up here because I don't have enough table. But he put it off the pillow and just set it to the side until he was ready for it. You know what one of the things that they call this pillow? The rock. So it was wrapped in a cloth and placed behind the rock. Until the time which it came, when they're getting ready to the third cup in the supper. And then Jesus makes a very profound statement. Because he didn't just reach into that Matsatosh and just grab another piece of bread. He didn't reach across the table. He would have reached in here into the comen, pulled it out and says, this is my body, which is broken for you, as often as you eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, his body was the one that was broken and put in the cloth. It was hidden, but it was for a ransom for us. Hidden behind the rock until it was time to come out. You guys get the picture? i telling you, if you've never been to a Seder meal, you need to. In fact, we'll probably have one again this year. Well, it'll be next year, but it's so powerful. You see, it's not just some piece of bread. It was the one that was in the Comen. This is the one that gets pulled out at that point in the meal, and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. It's a symbol of sim- uh, sinlessness. You see, there was no sin in Jesus. There was no leaven in him. We know that. I mean, think about even the town that he was born in Bethlehem. It means house of bread. This whole thing is always pointing. This is the part we ignore in the story. We always talk about the blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. Yeah, that's great. It's true. We don't have any songs about the bread probably not as catchy. Maybe they don't rhyme well. I don't know. What do you rhyme with bread? Dead? That doesn't go well. We don't need any songs about Fred. or You know, I mean, it's his body that was broken for us. So now when we see this in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul is getting on to the Corinthian church. I know we've read this the last couple of weeks, but let's read it again. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. When you come together for the better, or not for the better, but for the worse, for first of all, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you." Paul is not saying that you don't come together as a church to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying you, people of Corinth, are not coming together to partake in what we call the communion. You're coming together for other reasons. Verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it and remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Every time you look upon those stones, you will tell the children of Israel of how God brought them by the hand out of Egypt and crossed the Jordan on dry land. Every time you see the rainbow, you will remember that I will never flood again the earth with water. You could look at that in so many different places. And Paul just told us in Jesus, these are Jesus' word, that as often as you eat this bread, which is a symbol of my body, of that cup, you do it in remembrance of me, as often as you do it, you're proclaiming his death until he returns. If Jesus didn't die, if he did, wasn't buried and he wasn't resurrected, then we and our faith is futile, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. It's his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, and the resurrection that our faith is made whole. But then Paul takes it a step further. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this is bad so far. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. What is he talking about here? And we're going to receive communion in a minute. He's not just talking about, oh, I've got some sin in my life. The context of it is the way in which we take this. That somehow there's a hierarchy of, of special people. for them, you've got to remember, we got a different culture. And, and, and the church in Jerusalem, as an example, was very poor. Bread was always served. It was cheap. You could get it. You could make it. All of that. That when you come together, we are coming together for this purpose. To partake of the Lord's Supper so that we remember the work that He had done. And what was that work? Well, that His body was broken for us to make us well. And that His blood was shed for us to make us whole. That the Spirit of Christ could dwell in us and give life to our mortal bodies. And it was through this process that we are made right with God. And so when we examine ourselves, what is our motive in this? Why are we doing this? Janet told a great story this morning. She's maybe told, and I'm going to attempt not to butcher this, but it's about the roast. Okay? Janet, you correct me if I get any of the details wrong. But is this a true story or is this just something that... Yeah. You don't... Okay. This just became my story. But she was telling a story a while back and she mentioned it today about somebody who had, when she learned to make a roast, she learned to make it from Grandma. And Grandma would set the roast out and cut the ends off of the roast and put it in the pan and put it in the oven. And so when uh, she made roast for her family, she'd do the same thing. she cut the ends of the roast off, put it in the pan, and put it in the oven. And finally somebody asked, why do you cut the ends off the roast? And she said, I have no idea. It's what Grandma did. Only to find out the reason Grandma cut the ends off the roast because her pot was too small. You had to make it fit. Is it fair to say that we do a lot of things in the the world of Christ, in the world of the church, we have no idea why we do it? We just do it. You could say the same thing about our beliefs. We've got a lot of beliefs, but we don't know why we believe them. We just believe them because we've been told to. When it comes to the idea of communion, we don't do it out of some religious ceremony. We've got to recognize the body and the blood of Christ and what that meant for us, that His body was broken for us that by His stripes that we could be healed. There's power in this. So here's what I want to do. Laura, would you mind jumping on the keyboard? I'm going to put you on the spot. I want to stand up. and We're going to receive communion. I'm going to pass these things around. If you just take one, pass it back, start there. I'm going to hand one to Jim and then if you wouldn't mind. But what we've got to get out of our head is is the what we're doing. You see, you can take this in any way. You can go to any church and just take this and do whatever you want with it. But there is a reason that we do this. Every time that we do this, I'll tell you that the disciples did it every day, and I'm going to issue you guys a challenge. Because I believe that one of the key components that we are missing is why we walk around as believers who believe that God heals is that we do not partake upon this. We wait for it to do it in church, but we should be doing this at home every single day. And I'm going to ask you guys, as you go forth today, for the next month with your family, whether it be your children or if it's just you, or I mean, even if you've got a neighbor or whatever, thank you. Every day, take communion. You don't need anything like this. You need some bread, you need some grape juice. It's pretty simple. But when we do it, we're going to do it with the reason. We're going to examine ourselves. Now, if you don't know how to get this thing open, and I know some of you don't, there's a little plastic sleeve on top to get this delicious wafer out. But when Jesus said that this is my body, and he pulls out that bread from the offie he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember what he did. Let's thank him for his goodness. Let's thank him that we are made whole physically by the breaking of his body. It's he that said that. By his stripes we are healed. Fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah. Giving us an example in Matthew chapter 8. That as he healed them, that it might be fulfilled by his stripes we are healed. I don't care what the sickness is in your body it does not belong there it was not given to you by God it never has been full of sin sin has brought death in the world sickness is slow death and if the Spirit of Christ is in you then he will give life to your mortal body and so when we break this bread and we take it let's receive that church let's do this father we thank you for your body that was broken for us that by your stripes that we are healed Lord, that no matter what is going on, Lord, that we know that we receive this and we have judged ourselves and we take it upon ourselves knowing that you have paid the price for that. He said that when he takes the cup, that this is the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of the pouring out of his blood, getting ready to go to the cross, that knowing that this isn't what heals us, this is what makes us alive, that the inside man is the real man. And so, Father, we receive this as your Son poured out His blood on our behalf, knowing that it was for no other reason than to make us right with you, that we have the right to go into the throne room, that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you have made us whole. So, Father, we partake this together, giving you thanks for what you have done. Lord, we glorify you. And I thank you, Lord, that you are putting in our hearts who we truly are in you. That we are not a people that are sick, that we are a people made whole. That we are not a people who are weak, that we are a people who made strong. Lord, that all things are through you and for you and by you. And God, today we receive that. And Lord, we thank you that you were willing, that while we didn't deserve it, you poured out your son as an offering for our benefits. And so Lord, we give you the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, for the next 30 days, I challenge you. Every day, I don't care if you do it in the morning, do it at night, do whatever. Take five minutes. Examine your heart. Know what God did and mix your faith with what you're doing. I promise you, you will see a change in your situation. No matter what it is. The early church did this. Every time they came together, the early church did it on a daily basis. I will show you that in scripture next week. The bottom line is this. We have allowed the enemy to take this and make it a religious exercise. We've attached strings to this that don't belong there. There are a lot of people in that upper room. A lot of people. And God said, and Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood which is poured out from you. You guys are going to begin to start hearing testimonies of how good and powerful God is. Stories of the past, stories of the present. And I promise you that as we continue to follow God and what His Word says... This is our memorial. You'll hear testimonies of the future. We serve a good God who has made a total provision for us in every way. And we should be thankful for it. Amen.